everyone and welcome to another episode of the Psychosocial Distancing Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Chadbourne, and with me as always is Thomas Brooks. Hello, hello. So today we're going to be moving past personality and social psychology into talking about industrial organizational psychology. And today we have a special guest, Dr. Suzanne Booth-Ledoux. Hi. And so we typically let our guests introduce themselves because you do it better than we will. Hi, everyone. My name is Suzanne Booth-Ledoux, and I uh, have a PhD in industrial organizational psychology from Louisiana State University. And currently, I am an assistant professor um, at Southeastern Louisiana University in Hammond, Louisiana. Um, My specialty, as you know, at this point is industrial organizational. And so the majority of things that I talk about are psychology in the business world. So we think, and oftentimes I tell my students and in my classrooms, you take social psychology, you put it into the workplace, um, then you're going to get I.O. And so it would seem that some of the content that y'all have been hearing about over the many weeks uh, might be familiar in terms of what we study in I.O., but it's a lot of engagement, satisfaction, and all holistically how to make the workplace um, a healthier and happier place for everyone involved because, well, people have to work. Yeah, we, we do talk an awful lot about the workplace. Usually Thomas is criticizing it. Only a little bit. I'm not terrible. <laughs> so we, we wanted to, the kind of the idea behind what we wanted to talk about with this was, was something that's uh, definitely a big discussion amongst like academic Twitter. Uh, it's something that I found really refreshing. It's one of the few Twitter communities I think I can like delve into and feel comfortable with. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about work-life balance. So academics discussing this aspect, uh, students, grad students talking about work-life balance and expectations. And so we wanted to kind of delve into, you know, this idea of, of kind of the IO, the, you know, if we're going to talk about work and we're going to bring in some of those th- social psych uh, influence that we bring uh, to the podcast, um, we want to talk a little bit about that, uh, about how people balance the expectations of their job with life, though, if you're a grad student, sometimes work and life is sort of the same thing. Uh, sometimes it feels that way in academia. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, but just to kind of put it into context for anyone who's not familiar with the, say, work family, work life domain, what we're really thinking about there is how individuals manage um, the expectations that they have from work with the expectations that they have in their life or their family um, domain as well. Um, Because unfortunately, sometimes those expectations are not compatible. And so um, people may experience a conflict between, say, for example, the time that they need to be at work versus the time in their family, um, maybe to attend to their, their children or elderly aging parents. And so that's something that we research because the goal is to figure out how can we make those two domains, those two um, areas mesh a little bit better for people. And so, you know, sometimes we talk about conflict, but we do try to strive for balance. Um, what a couple of things to know, though, when you're thinking about the work family uh, domain and aspect of things is that you can have work influence your family, but you can also have your family influence your work. So you might take your work home with you. Um, and so that can impact how you behave in your family domain. But you might also have your family come to work with you and not necessarily literally, maybe emotionally, uh, maybe they call you, things of that nature that you have to kind of switch. Now, for some people, that's fine. Some people are integrators all the way. They are perfectly happy with integrating their work and their family. They don't mind doing work at home and they don't mind answering those phone calls um, from family when they're at work. Now, one thing what I always caution folks is to be mindful of what you are, Um, because some people integrate, some people are very much segmenters. Uh, They do not want those two domains to mix. And and one thing that I always try to, uh, you know, especially for my future leaders, um, I tell them talking to my students and those around me, I'm like, hey, just be aware, 
that not everyone is the same as you. Uh, they don't necessarily feel the same way. So if you call them when they are at home, that can be very, very, very problematic for them. Um, and it can make them very upset with you. Um, and you might not understand. You might just say, look, I'm an integrator. It's completely fine. Um, but for them, they may need that distance. Um, so that's the biggest, one of the big things. Um, but also when we think about that work family um, interface in between, and now, you, now there are people who say maybe work life, broadly speaking, but there's the work family side of it. Um, you know, some people consider it to be uh, maybe that it's a facilitatory type of situation that that one domain actually facilitates um, how they perform in the other. So that would be the one that I'm actually better at home because I work, meaning that I maybe get, get you know, take some of the positive experiences that I have from work and they can spill over into my family, don't you, right? You, you've done a great job at work that day. You go home and you are just super happy, right? And maybe you're, you're happy with your family and that can spill over into um, your work life. And so we see that a lot. Um, I will say that sometimes we think about that spillover um, a relationship as being a negative um, and that we think negative spillover that if you're upset with your family, that can make you upset when you go to work because maybe you're in a bad mood. Um, but it doesn't always have to be that way. You can have that positive spillover, which can be really, really, really nice. Um, and so, you know, again, I would just caution that if you're thinking about this work family interface, you know, always be mindful of that. Not, you're not necessarily the same as those around you. And one more note here is that there are three different types of ways that, you know, if we think the conflict side of things that work and family can conflict with each other, one being time. So you can have a time conflict that, you know, maybe you're running late from work and that makes you late to pick up your children um, or vice versa. Maybe you have, um, a behavior um, issue or behavior-based conflict, meaning that one, how you have to behave at work is not compatible with how you have to behave at home because maybe you have to be stern um, at work and maybe your family needs more of the emotional um, support side of things. And so that's concerning. And then finally, we have the strain-based component, um, which is that maybe if you have some stressors um, that can be carried over um, from one domain to the other. So there are some conflict issues there, but it doesn't always have to be bad that we can oftentimes look for more of a spillover, a positive spiller, or maybe even a compensation side of things with that work family interface. So when we talk about the work family interface and, you know, the kind of ways that we approach either, you know, segmenting the two domains or integrating them, does the kind of work someone is doing, like, what is the influence of that? Because I'm thinking, you know, if I'm on call as like an Uber driver, for example, I'm not going to be able to manage my family's time needs as effectively. Um, and, I, you know, specifically for this podcast, I'm thinking of the differences between like an undergrad who has a very structured course situation with very structured assignments and due dates. Whereas in graduate school, it's kind of, you know, very amorphous. Am I doing this today? Am I doing that today? Versus like a uh, professorship position where it's probably very, also very amorphous, but also more delineated than the graduate student situation. So how do these different domains of work kind of influence how we manage? And is there a better way to approach that balance depending on where you're at in the workforce? Well, I would say, first and foremost, basically acknowledge how you feel about it, um, because certain jobs, you know, people will, or situations, they buy into that, right? And so they buy into a, I know that, that there's going to be more integration here. For example, you know, you're mentioning um, professors, right? I came from a, obviously, grad school, which everything blended a lot. I took everything with me, whether all my work, all of my papers came with me no matter where I went. Um, and as you mentioned, now that in more of a professor role, um, it's not as much that I take it everywhere, but it still does come, but I bought into that. It was something that I knew I was okay with, right? And so I think the first hurdle is to understand how you are and to think about the context of where you're working and if that works for you. Now, 
obviously that's not going to be a perfect scenario because maybe you're thinking you're undergraduate students and they're in this situation and maybe they don't want to integrate and they like to segment um, or vice versa and they they're they're in the situation that they're in and they can't necessarily get out of it i would say well okay um take strides in your own life to do what you want in terms of integrate segment set those boundaries make sure you talk to the people around you and also practice recovery um that if you are in a situation that's opposite to your natural tendency um i would say try to find ways to recover from those experiences um i also uh, i oftentimes try to recommend to my students that there are ways that people are recommendations for how you can recover from work and as a student your job is school. It is a job. Um, it is a full-time job, and you need to practice that here too. And so, one thing, a couple of things that you can do, and this is research-based from Sonentag back in the early 2000s, um, and colleagues, that you can psychologically detach, right? So, literally set aside some time where you put your work, your school, on pause for a minute, and say, well, "We're going to come back to that." Now, not obviously indefinitely. That's not the goal here, but just kind of take a mental break from it to uh, to literally allow yourself to you know kind of decompress from that situation so that'd be psychological detachment you can also relax relaxation goes a long way and because it might allow you to do more of that detach that momentary detachment um, and that can include going for a walk reading a book maybe going for a jog whatever it is sitting on the couch um, that you like to do and then finally mastery um, mastery can be very very, very effective um, in terms of helping people to recover from their work um, and their issues and things that might spill over um, from one domain to the other, that it, it allows them to literally disconnect for a moment. And when we talk about mastery, it's basically get a hobby. Um, you know, have that extra something that you do outside of your work that makes makes you take take a step away from it. So even if you do have some of that spillover and you don't like it, um, have that hobby that makes you say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna pause for that for now, and I'm gonna go do this. Um, and we think about the hobby it would never, normally be something that we recommend um, <clears throat> that's more challenging, something that would be a little bit more engrossing, because that way you can really um, see creative efforts in a different capacity. And so. I don't know. Uh, fun fact, let's see, I like to sew, right? So that's for me, a creative endeavor that takes me out of that, a different situation and puts my mind um, still engaging, but just in a different capacity. I haven't done it in a couple of weeks, months at this point, but uh, I paint miniatures. And so that's that's been my hobby. So trying to make them as I don't know. I'm not nearly as good as the people online who post their stuff. But. You also sew. I got a magnificent Christmas stocking from you with mermen all over it, and it was very pleasant. Yes. Do you really? That's outstanding. Yeah. My uh, normally it's behind me, but it's in the other room. Yeah. No. I. Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm with the, that. That's that Renaissance man, kind of jack of all trades is where I try to try to fit myself in somewhere. But I think they're all just excuses not to have to work. They're ways to detach. They are they are research based uh, ways to detach that can actually be very 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 helpful for you when you go back to work. You'll be recovered. You'll be more energized. Um, you're giving yourself that break because that's one thing you know. I don't know. In today's society, we're very fast paced, and people don't always give themselves a break. Give yourself a break. It's okay. Um, it's all still going to be there. Um, and you don't have to be perfect at everything all, all the time. Yeah, I find that that especially with this, like one of the things that I've noticed with different jobs that I've had over the years, both retail, academic, student, that a lot of this too for me is always dependent on being able to talk about it. And it's it's not really something that I've always been able to like have conversations with. But now that I'm able to understand it a little better myself. It's something that I'm encouraging my students to have conversations on. Uh, we, we did that this semester in my social psychology class. We had a whole day where we just talked about burnout and workload and actually having this discussion about like, hey, is everyone, you know, you're doing okay. Do you, you need a break? You should probably take a break. I know it seems very hard sometimes, but the norms, like, like the, the, the norms within the environment of the institution or 
the program, you know, if we're just talking about in a psychology department, it can be very difficult dependent on who's there and whether or not this is something that people are talking about, that they're acknowledging, or that you know, we're even seeing as an option of something that we can do. Yeah, I, uh, I'm currently working on a, I guess it's a presentation that will be a paper on graduate students work during the pandemic and kind of their experiences of productivity. And we're working with this idea of the ideal worker who should be always producing, always being productive. And none of the graduate students, all of the graduate students felt like they weren't doing enough, but they could never tell us what they were supposed to be doing. And so there was a lot of guilt, there was a lot of shame and anxiety. And like even students, there was one student that talked about how it was like, he said, the first couple of months were great. I got caught up on everything. I did everything. I wrote my dissertation. And then I sat in my room with nothing to do with except this feeling that I still needed to be productive, but I had no more tasks to do. And that was the worst part. You know, I'm thinking about you mentioning um, that poster you have coming up. Some of my uh, top of my undergraduate students were working on a project right now. Um, and it, it's during the obviously it's the pandemic. We're talking undergraduates during the pandemic and we're trying to interested in um, knowing what their experiences are like. Right. Because there's research that shows, you know, life satisfaction issues, maybe well-being because they're you know, our undergraduate students can be overwhelmed, especially if they're working. Right. So we were kind of seeing how are they doing amidst the pandemic and also what are their coping strategies? Right. Because Carver in the late 80s or so um, came up with some ideas of kind of a kind of approach to coping um, in different strategies beyond say just like um, you know thinking um, emotionally emotion focused coping or problem focused coping they expanded that repertoire of options <clears throat> and we found some real interesting findings preliminary findings about what students are doing to cope with things right now um, what are what are the ones who are reporting the higher levels of satisfaction the higher levels of well-being what are they doing that's making them different than say students who are a little bit lower on well-being a little bit lower on life satisfaction and some of it is you know Maybe it is that that problem side of it, right? That they um, they might be trying to get things done. There is some planning component, right? They're just like, okay, they're strategizing to figure out, okay, how do I address my issues? Um, some of it is getting social support, but instrumental, right? They ask other people to help them. They get advice. Um, so you know that you know when you ask. Daniel, about how, how can we help you? How are you doing? Um, that actually can go a really long way, it would seem. Um, also, say the emotional side of things, the emotion-focused coping. Um, but there was um, actually one area that I thought was interesting that they reported as one of their highest coping mechanisms. And it was, um, a, it was called positive reinterpretation and growth. That basically, and that's a, it's from Carver, but that's the one that the, the healthiest students are reporting that they're doing the most in terms of coping. They are more positively reinterpreting maybe the negatives around them and using them as growth opportunities to say, how can I take this bad to make it something good for me, which kind of, uh, not, it shouldn't probably have blown me away a little bit, but it was just so fascinating to know that that really is linking to better outcomes. And so thinking recommendations for maybe even management of stress, management of your various domains. Um, obviously, things are not going to always go as planned. Um, but there is some support there to say, or at least to argue for, maybe take, you know, take what you got and see how can you make it better for yourself. And so it's kind of like a heightened optimism. Yeah, it was it was interesting. Again, I mean, if you if you're interested in the Carver um, article, that the items there are literally, um, you know, seeing taking this uh, positive reinterpretation, seeing the bad, making it good, right, and seeing how can I use this bad as a growth thing? How can I learn from this? And so it was just a very very optimistic way for uh, of handling some of the not so fun things that you know I mean obviously students are potentially juggling right now with um, <clears throat> you know remote learning potentially if that's not necessarily their desired form um, or you know with the pandemic and various hurdles that have obviously come out about from this um, it was just a really really interesting and informative um, result preliminary result I wonder if 
at least in your knowledge of the literature, has the concern with work-life work life balance grown over the years? Because I'm thinking, you know, when we talk about these different domains or these spheres of life, like they used to be highly like structurally segmented in society where, you know, the wife stays home with the kids, the man is the breadwinner. And that's kind of been dismembered and distributed across time uh, to the point where we're at today. So is work-life balance kind of a current problem or is the idea of like striving for work-life balance kind of like trying to return to an older situation where you had more structure in life? Um, I don't know if it's a problem, but I think it's a goal, um, if that makes sense. In terms of, you know, organizations are very cognizant these days of the fact that when they hire someone, more oftentimes than not, that person is going to come with expectations that the organization is going to be flexible. They are going to be understanding of the fact that that person has a life beyond work, um, and that's okay. Um, and that that any employees these days value organizations that see the importance of life beyond work, and they seek that out. And so. Um, you know, I, I think it is becoming much more of the norm, um, again, something to strive for. And actually, I have some research that is hopefully coming out in the not so distant future, talking about some of that more egalitarian mindset. So the much more blending of roles as opposed to the traditional gender roles that you might um, have seen 50 plus years ago. Um, but that egalitarian mindset being that people, you know, they are taking on traditional roles from the opposite um, the opposite side of things all the time. And actually, in our research, we're finding that when individuals do take more of an egalitarian mindset, um, that they are, they are not just saying that, you know, work is for men and being at home is for women, um, it actually is a little bit freeing for them, for what we, we're seeing, that it allows them to not feel that they have mentioning be perfect, right? That they can do work, they can do family, but they don't have to do everything themselves, right? Because they have a partner who's going to do work and do family with them. Um, and when you have that mindset, in addition to an organization that is supportive, um, we've seen findings or, or have findings that should support the idea that these people are gonna be less likely to turn over. Um, they're gonna be more satisfied with their work. And the, the, again, the argument that we're thinking here is that they say, okay, I don't have to be everybody's everything. Um, I can do my work and rely on my my partner to help with family, or I can do family and they can rely on me. Um, and it's that give and take, and they can get the best of all worlds. So there's more of that facilitation, that positive spillover potentially at play there. Um, so, you know, that egalitarian mindset, I think, is becoming much more of the norm um, these days. And now I will, I will say it could very well be because of a function of society and that it's very expensive to live in the world today. And so, you know, if you're going to have a, if you're going to be a family, it might require two incomes to make it. Um, but I think that people are adapting to those changes and not just because they, from a financial sense, they're realizing that work is, work can be very fulfilling. Family can be very fulfilling and that can be for all members of a family and a unit. I'm not sure if there's any research yet on this because it is so new with the pandemic, but I'm kind of thinking of the two different like groups of people that have experienced major changes during the pandemic. You have like the people in, you know, white collar work who all went home for Zoom. So like the three of us, we all went home for Zoom classes. You know, we are now in the private sphere, like away from the public with our spouses and, you know, significant others and children. And then there's the people that just lost their work or are now like Uber delivery people who bring us food while we're on our Zoom meetings. And so what kind of difference do you expect to see or are you seeing in this uh, conversation about work family dynamics between say the delivery people versus the Zoom home life people who now have like full integration of their work and their family lives? really good question and I don't I haven't seen any research as of yet I'm sure it's there or at least it's coming um I would imagine different types of conflict right and different types of stressors 
as in, you know, someone who is working from home might have some of the more of the time issues, right? That it could be hard to set aside time for one or the other. Um, but for someone who is maybe not employed in the, the way that they want, I would imagine that some of those financial um, tolls could, could be more problematic for the entire experience. Um, at family because again it might be more of the negative side of spillover that they might be experiencing especially for potentially strain based i would imagine a lot of the interactions could be not great potentially in the family environment because they can't separate from some of those financial that financial toll and demand that they might not be able to meet um, without working right now so i would imagine that um maybe maybe um, some conflict for both groups, just different types and probably very much different levels of severity um, in how uh, people are experiencing that. And which also would then lead to um, very different potentially coping styles and um, potential ways to recover eventually from those experiences. I stayed with my partner who's a music teacher who was also moved on Zoom. And that was our big conflict because I was trying to write papers and we were listening to vocal warm-ups throughout the apartment eight times a day. <laughs> it was a mess. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, oh, I would imagine so. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know if I've ever really thought to myself that like I would miss my office just on occasion. But every every now and then, like, 11 o'clock comes around and my son's off of class and is running around the house burning off that energy that he was bottling up sitting in front of a computer screen and it's like hmm, maybe my office would be a nice place right now like wanting more I guess of that distance where maybe before I didn't necessarily think that like, like maybe I wanted more of this integrated um, kind of work and family though, though I will say trying to focus on that reframing and that restructuring is like being home and like at least being like you know what I can walk down the hall and go say hi to my family I could take a break and go see how everyone's doing is is kind of an enjoyable thing despite the added noise that shows up you're 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 obviously practicing what you know is preached in literature especially for the that's that positive spillover right that you know you have that ability to go see them and that can positively impact your mood, which you can then take with you when you go back to your work, when you walk back down that hall um, to go back to grade a paper, which I'm sure your students will appreciate because you'll be in that great mood when you're grading said paper. Um, but that's, you know, that would be, that's what we strive for, um, you know, because it really can be that nice, um, that nice flow from one domain to the other. The only issue is that, you know, making sure that you can walk down that hall as opposed to, um, that being an open door, <laughs> it lands in your lab while you're trying to work. That's that's a little bit of the challenge, but um, and we, we strive for that positive side. So I have another, you know, kind of off the wall question here, because kind of in preparation for this, I was exploring the literature a little bit. And I found this interesting article about uh, women in leadership positions in higher education. This is in Australia. So I don't know if we can speak to the Australian experience here, but just kind of in a general Western capitalistic experience that we kind of all share. But they reported that um, even though they kind of live under this work-life balance, work-family dynamic as something that's supposed to be, if you achieve it, it should give you autonomy and flexibility and improve your well-being, that they often described it as being something that was like a personal management task that they had to add to their list of things to do that it was kind of this impossible ideal, that it hurt their careers, and it was something that they didn't feel like they could actually speak about at work, particularly the women who had families and children responsibilities uh, on top of their positions and leadership. So what kind of gender differences or I guess demographic differences at all do you notice in the work and the literature with work-life balance or work-family dynamic? Well, that's an interesting uh, topic because there is there is some consideration for say a family penalty of sorts, if you will, that having children can be in some areas in some countries deemed to be problematic. Um, and it can, can in some areas set you back. Um, and it can make also people very nervous about talking about it, what their experiences are. You know, 
you know, I, I was touting and arguing for egalitarianism, that kind of blending of roles so that no one has to do it all and be it all. But the unfortunate truth is that we're not there yet holistically. Um, there is still very much um, a presence of some of those traditional gender roles. And in some countries, it's more obvious than others, such that there are expectations around what men and women should do um, and should be and how they should be, which can be very, very, very trying. And now I will say countries that have been more um, supportive of, say, blending of gender roles, and we're talking countries holistically that have more of that blend, um, they do have better results for their, um, their constituents and their actual people in terms of you know, satisfaction and being able to cope, but in other societies in which there is much more of a delineation between roles. It is, it is a real challenge. It is something that um, people struggle with all the time. And so, you know, this is not just a, okay, you have to make a decision to do this. This would be an organization has to help you. Your country has to get behind it and having a, a philosophical idea for sharing of the load because there would have to be policies in place to help people, um, men, women, you name it, right, for anyone who are, that want to do different things. So maybe paid paternity leave, right? That sort of thing. That would be a really nice um, way to help these things move along because even in some of our more, um, I guess, gender, gender equality, progressive countries, if you will, um, we're still not quite there because, again, it takes a lot of time to see some of that higher societal level change. That, that always threw me off. I, one of my first, I, I guess, more long-term jobs back when they existed is I worked at Blockbuster. And Blockbuster would offer male managers paternity leave way back in the day. And it seems something like we're, 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 we're still having a conversation on like a federal level now on just maternity leave, let alone paternity leave. Um, but that's I, that definitely was something that I was thinking of when we were talking about kind of the egalitarian push that for countries that that are pushing for more like, yes, you know, we're going to give you time off so that you can also help with your family, that you can also stay at home. You guys are in this together. So we're going to give you time off for that, as opposed to it's just a maternity leave thing. You still have to work. There's still that kind of gender gap delineation. Um, but yeah, it's, it's always, that's always stuck with me as something like if Blockbuster could do it, I mean, yes, they're out of business now, but if Blockbuster could do it, anyone should be able to do that. Anyone should be able to offer at least a couple of weeks off for their employees in, in this regard. I, I found some interesting, so I found some extra data um, by Denson at all 2017 which kind of looked at like a gender racial breakdown of who perceived in uh, higher education professors of who perceived that they had uh, a strong work-life balance and it was really really interesting it wasn't at all what i expected so african-american women perceived themselves to have a poorer balance than men did but that was the opposite for latino professors so Latinas believe that they had a stronger balance than Latino professors did. And then there were no gender differences between Asian American and white professors. But white professors who were single or didn't have children had some of the lowest perception of work-life balance and there were no family discrepancies between the other races. And so that was really interesting. And then they also did a breakdown of discipline. And so for Asian American and Latino professors, there were no disciplinary differences, but for African Americans in business, as opposed to humanities, they had felt that they had a stronger balance. Whereas biological sciences for white people had a stronger balance than humanities. And so humanities got the short end of the stick both times, but it was just all over the place. And what really stuck out was the white people without kids even though like there were no differences in family dynamic or structure with other racial categories. Do you think that could have to do with just sort of like putting yourself into your career? I mean, like it is, I mean, I, maybe it, it was easier because I, I was a grad student with a family. <laughs> um, 
you know, with that aspect. So it was pretty easy to like try to maintain some balance or at least hope that I could maintain some balance um, as opposed to like if I were single and my life is be been, like me. My life has been, you know, just working on my degree for the last 10 years. What, I mean, what we are in my I'm currently on Zoom in my living room, my video game room, my hobby room and my work room. And my partner lives an hour away in Dallas that I only see on the weekends. So I do have a balance. I just work and only work for five days out of the week. <laughs> you know, it's an interesting conversation, though, because about the, the, the children thing. Um, something that always I found, fast, I found fascinating is that, you know, my interpretation and also in my own research, I try to be more holistic. I'm thinking about family as opposed to just saying that if you only get to have a family if you have kids. And there is some research and there is a there are some individuals or you know researchers who believe that that's what defines family. Um, I take a much broader approach to family um, in my own research saying that you know family is not just if you have children. It's a it could be your pet, you know, I mean, there are individuals who their pet is their family and that's fine. Um, it could also be maybe your elderly aging parents, you know, that they have needs and that you're taking care of them. And so, you know, just kind of uh, tossing it out there to anyone listening, you know, don't think that this information about work family doesn't apply to you if you don't have children, um, because it absolutely does. Um, you have people in your world and your family side that that need you, need your attention, and that's not bad, um, but they might just not be children. It could be extended family, friends, maybe even, um, maybe even your pets, and so, you know, you can experience these things, and so, by the way, that result didn't necessarily, it didn't surprise me for some of the reasons that Daniel mentioned, but I had some of my own thoughts about those individuals that, and maybe no children, but I don't know what else they have going on there. Well, it, it makes me wonder too, like you, you, you finish your, you know, you get your PhD and you're just applying to everywhere in the country and you're hoping to get something maybe close to your family. Um, maybe that family that you have, but maybe you don't. And so maybe you end up halfway across the country and you've got no one um, or you don't have that kind of stable family base that, 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 you know, you had where, where, you know, where you were at one point. So that does make sense, like it broadening it, that, that we could see that, you know, if you've got a single, you know, individual um, you know, in academia, it could be very difficult because they've, that support structure that they may have had where they were going for their undergraduate degree, maybe even, you know, where they were going for their other advanced degree, maybe isn't there anymore. Their colleagues are halfway across the country. Their family's halfway across the country. No, that's a good point. That was something that our advisor told me like very early on. He was like, if you want to be a professor, then you have to be prepared to move where the job is. And, you know, he's from like California and he's now in small town, Texas. So, and his partner is from Bulgaria and now she's in Kentucky. So, you know, he was like, you have to prepare yourself to move wherever the job is. And that's otherwise you need to find something else. Or you can get lucky. I mean, or you get lucky. I, I got I got real lucky after I got my master's degree. I got to work at the same place I got my master's degree for a while. And then afterwards, I was like, mm, I don't know when a tenure track position is going to open up here. Maybe I need to look elsewhere. <laughs> so I just have one more question. Um, I know we've talked a little bit about the past, a little bit about the future, but what parts of this area of research are you most excited about moving forward? Like, where do you think the research is going? Where do you think it should go? Where do you think people are uh, not paying attention where they should be paying attention? That's a good question. Um, I'm personally very passionate about the egalitarian side of things. Um, it, it has different names, uh, depending upon what literature you're reading, you know, blending of gender roles, sex role liberalism, um, also segmenting, you know, integrate or, you know, sharing load. You, there's all sorts of things out there. You can think about how people are managing things, but the egalitarian side is really something um, I'm personally excited about, especially because I see our society 
at least trying to make strides towards that. And there's real benefit to be had when it by those transitions in our world and for people, because you know it is hard. It is hard to it's it work can be hard. Helping and managing your family can be hard. Um, but that egalitarian mindset that you can do both, you can, you can do it all, um, and you don't have to be perfect uh, because you have a partner, someone who's there with you that can help you, and that's okay, or if it's family. Um, it makes me very excited because it's that, that positive outlook on the, it doesn't have to, you don't have to do it everything because in our society is very like, you've got to be perfect, um, which is, I guess it's nice to strive, but that's what I'm excited about. Um, and a lot of that kind of similar mindset, because um, I have some other research that's more into, say, like boomerang employees, right? People who would leave one organization um, and then they go to a different and then they go back to organization A, right? They, they boomerang, they come full circle. And that those individuals, some research out there that's arguing that they'll stick with you. And so, again, it's that almost like forgiving mindset holistically that egalitarianism be flexible this boomerang you don't have to always necessarily get it right the first time you can come back and that can be a really refreshing energizing moment for people so and i'm not sure if i answered your question holistic in its entirety but i'm just i don't know i get excited about people being more forgiving of themselves um, and that there's research to support that it is okay um, it is okay to ask for help it is okay to want to do work and family. It's okay to want to get into all of it because actually it can make you much more effective in any of your individual domains by having multiple roles, which is really exciting for me personally. I'm, I'm no, absolutely. To give a talk on something quasi related to that tomorrow um, on multiple roles, building well-being, multiple identities, building well-being. And, and that goes, I think what you, what you said, it, it's not just a, a family thing, it's, it's a work-life balance. And so it's personal life, it's community engagement, it's whatever your, whatever that life is to you. And it, it, it makes sense and feeling that you can do it together. That, that, that's a big, it's a big theme on this podcast. That sort of egalitarian mindset uh, that we can, we can do it together. Hey, Daniel. Yep. I think it's time. It's time. It's time. For our bias of the week. Yes. All right. So I, I was thinking of, all right, what, what would be a good bias to talk about this week? Um, or a bias to talk about in relation to work-life balance? And I, I got to thinking that, you know, some of the things that we talked about kind of fits and some of the things that we discuss in regards of maybe what we need moving forward for work-life balance might apply to this in some degree, especially if we're talking about um, reducing that stress or making headway towards a more egalitarian mindset. Um, and so I chose, I'm really trying to stretch it here, but I chose <laughs> zero risk bias. Okay. Zero risk bias is a preference for reducing a small risk to zero over a greater reduction in a larger risk. And I'm, I'm gonna see if I could stretch it to make it fit with work-life balance. But sort of the idea, like if we wanna make changes within an organization, let's say I wanna make changes at the university that I work at or changes in the way that my grad students act, I would probably wanna avoid falling into zero risk bias because what that would lead me to do is is maybe produce you know preferring little changes maybe i drop a little assignment here or maybe i you know make something just a little easier for them and that, that's reducing that risk or that stressor to zero but there are these other big things that are causing issues with work-life balance and burnout and stress and i could reduce those more or i could work maybe with the institution to reduce those more but it's a lot easier to just change those little things. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, it was a stretch, but that was kind of something I had in the back of my mind during this conversation is, is, you know, I definitely agree that there are coping mechanisms and strategies that you can use to be better and feel better and, 
you know, live a more positive life within the circumstance that you find yourself. But when it comes down to it, like say for grad students, for example, um, is the responsibility of work-life balance on the individual or the institution? And what do we need to be, you know, what is it, what is the responsibility of the individual to meet those needs for, you know, the institution's goals and their own personal goals? And what are the institution's responsibilities for both of those goals? And that's a good question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just, I think, I think of stuff like that and, and that, you know, there, there's always some seminar or something like that on like how to cope with this or how to deal with this little thing and you know taking that kind of social psychologist approach of like stepping back and looking at the environment and saying all right like is it is it this one person is it is it this 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 individual um plan or or you know that this one you know magic magic rule seminar that's going to change things or is is there some underlying uh, issue at hand is there something and one of the things that really stuck with me what we've talked about so far is is just like talking about it having conversations about it actually being open about like this is what kind of worker i see myself as versus this other kind of worker and you know there were moments i i remember early on in, in teaching where like finally being somewhere where I can talk to someone and they're like, like, no, like it's perfectly fine for you not to answer emails on the weekend. I'm like, really, is it? Cause I, I mean, I kind of knew that it was, but I never really implemented it. Um, and I mean, I still find myself on occasion just cause I've been on my computer so much you know, engaging and I'm like, you know what, this email can wait. And, and it, it's because of those conversations or because of kind of the norms of the institution where I, I think these kind of bigger, bigger influences, these, these sort of broader institutional norms are, are probably doing more to kind of reduce this, even if we're not aware of it. Because a, a lot of this, I would argue, is, is tied to, I mean, especially if we're talking about like that perfect worker mentality or expectations as a grad student versus a, as a, a new academic versus a, I mean, anyone in academia, that there's, there's a lot of these institutional norms and these things that have kind of always been this way. And, you know, our advisor's advisor's advisor has influenced us in a number of ways in the way that their work mentality was. And I mean, we're talking about maybe four generations ago at this point, that we're still being influenced by that. And it's, it's be, it'd be easy to say, oh, we can, we can make this one little tweak to make your life easier, but you know, yes, it, it reduces a small risk or a small thing, but maybe there's some bigger, some broader, larger risks at hand. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, in the spirit of, you know, the advisor to advisee and the emails we found in some of the research with the grad students that advisors that emailed the student back immediately, every time, regardless of the time of day, made them feel good and supported. But these were also the students that had like really toxic positivity ideals for themselves too. And so we wonder how much we're modeling to students whenever we do answer immediately. You know, oh, professor answers immediately. So I have to answer immediately when I get an email. And so if we're just perpetuating the chain of chronic email surveillance. <laughs> And we could also apply this to the broader like IO sense of just like a corporation trying to solve a problem in terms of do you fix the small risk to zero to make yourself feel better like you've accomplished something or to make yourself look a little better when there's this larger looming risk that could also be solved. But we have oh, absolutely. preference for the smaller as opposed to the larger. Well, I think that actually, you know, I know you said you thought you were you were leaping. I didn't, I didn't actually see the leap because a lot of the things that we're talking about are scarier, larger scale changes that might need to happen, whether it's at your own level or organizational or even societal. And that might be a leap, um, but could, they're a good leap. They're a big, big leap and a necessary one because the return is is there so when you show your employees that you care when you take care of yourself you give yourself that break you flex um you're going to see the return on 
giving yourself that kind of moment, um, if you will. And so as opposed to just saying, oh, it's okay, I'll just put a little Band-Aid on it and deal with this small problem right now, but you're not dealing with the bigger pervasive issue, um, which, you know, thinking from an organization sense, if they don't take care of their employees and, you know, give them that flexibility to manage their families, that's a big risk uh, because their employees will leave, especially with the way that employees now are demanding more of that flexibility and that understanding and their organization could suffer drastically. And so I see the link um, again, but it's scary. It's hard to make some of those large scale changes across an entire organization, new policies because they can be expensive um, and all that, but the worth and the value might be there. And we've got plenty of examples. Like there, there have been companies for decades that have been, you know, having high minimum wage or paying their employees a fair wage, offering paid time leave, you know, uh, paid leave time and, and maternity and paternity leave. Like I said, if Blockbuster can do it or could do it at the time, but yeah, that 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 you can institute this. You can you can pay your employees a little more. And again, it seems scary, but it's ultimately reducing that risk, that greater risk. Because the last thing you want is, you know, your employees not being able to afford to get their car fixed or not being able to afford for those families that they have because you're right, they're going to leave or they're going to jump at the first opportunity when they have it. Mm -hmm. hmm. What a wide, scary world it is. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you so much for joining us. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I, this has been, work-life balance has been kind of like the ideal worker. I hear whispers of it in the culture, but I haven't actually got to speak with an expert on it before. So I've learned a ton. I've loved prepping for this. I've loved talking to you this evening. It has been an absolute pleasure. Y'all are outstanding to chat with. And yeah, we, we definitely appreciate it. Um, it's it's so much fun having guests on. I mean, I I love talking to Thomas, but it's it's so fun having guests on uh, to to chat about a lot of stuff that we're not uh, as much of an expert on, especially when we're doing, you know, instead of us doing an episode that we're not an expert on and just sort of going with it. Uh, mm -hmm. so we appreciate you chatting with us. And so, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm never good at ending these things. I usually just say like, goodbye. <laughs> <So>. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for having me, guys. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.